how do you teach uh, creativity? You, you, you take people along the journey of, uh, of invention, and then they, they eventually figure out how to unlock their creativity. That's what I do. It's not the, the, the model of education. The student is an empty vessel. And, and I have the water and I, I pour water into the vessel and fill it up. And then the student leaves with all this knowledge. No, I say, you know, the student has capabilities, but the student has to release those capabilities, grant himself or herself permission to, to, to think, to ask, ask the, uh, the audacious questions. You know, it is forbidden to forbid. Donald Sadoway is a legendary professor and scientist in chemistry at MIT. He is also the inventor of a steel-making process emitting no CO2 and new batteries for grid-scale storage and electric cars. In this episode, we cover Donald's passion for teaching at MIT and why his course became so popular, how you can learn and master a complicated subject like chemistry, inventing the liquid metal battery and how Ambry can change the world's grid, and why you should bet on youth and anti-experts to solve hard and big problems. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. So uh, I was born in Toronto and then uh, grew up in a place called Oshawa, which is about uh, 40 kilometers east of uh, Toronto. And I went to school there and then um, finished high school and then went to University of Toronto. And I uh, did all of my uh, schooling there, bachelor's, master's and PhD. And uh, uh, Toronto's a, f- a fabulous city, uh, very um, cosmopolitan, and getting even better and better over time. Uh, but back when I was born in the, I was born in 1950. So back in 1950, uh, Toronto was a, a very much a British colonial kind of a outpost. But it's really become a multicultural. People like to compare it to New York City. They say it's uh, it's New York City, but uh, not quite as uh, uh, high, high paced, um, and uh, but all of the cultural uh, diversity, um, and uh, then uh, you know it's also in in Canada it's sort of the the seat of uh, 
many of the financial institutions and also uh, things like broadcasting, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation starts out of Toronto. Um, and uh, education, the University of Toronto is, is ranked as uh, number one in, in the country. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a really good place. I obviously I got off to a good start because I ended up at MIT as a professor. So I must have learned something there. Um, yeah, well, that's enough. But, but how early did you find an interest in engineering? Was it uh, very early on or was it sort of like, this is the smart thing to study, so I'm just going to start and take engineering classes? Or was it like a very early you know, passion for it? Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I was drawn to the sciences and uh, chemistry was my favorite subject. I was probably influenced by by the teachers as much as anything else. If 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 the person who was teaching chemistry had been teaching physics, then I might have gone into physics. Sometimes you choose the person, not not the field. And um, <clears throat> I was interested in in applications, not in theoretical. And so, uh, but I didn't I didn't really uh, gravitate towards engineering. Uh, I thought engineering was too uh, too. Uh, uh, wasn't enough intellectual substance there. I didn't know, quite frankly, I didn't know. But um, for me, I had the good fortune at the University of Toronto, the, um, the engineering school is called uh, uh, the Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering. And for me, that was perfect because that's what I wanted was applied science. I wanted to be at the cusp between science and engineering. I didn't realize that I was actually getting involved in engineering, but the the, the labeling was uh, important to me. And um, then, then over time, I eventually, with the PhD, uh, eventually in my career at MIT, I, I was drawn more and more into um, what I call science and service to society. And then that, that really got me into developing technology that would be deployed and it, it ended up being way ahead of its time. I didn't even realize it, that I was working on things that would have implications and uh, things like energy transition, deep decarbonization, all of this stuff. I was working on it just because I was drawn to the subject matter or drawn to the people. Uh, I, I, I would be um, uh, not being honest with you if I didn't confess that I didn't have a master plan. I didn't imagine them when I was the age you are right now that I was thinking, I know this is where I want to be when I'm 50, 60, 70. I have these master plan. No, nothing. That's interesting. But I mean, so you've given lectures for, is it fair to say over 40 years at MIT or am I exaggerating? No, that's correct. That's an amazing achievement. And I also read upon you that you had some of the most popular classes. So I watched some of your lectures and it's very interesting to see your charisma and your passion for the subject. And it's very obvious that you deeply care about giving great lectures because I don't know if some professors after 20 years find it repetitive or they find it as joyful to keep giving the next lecture. But can you just take us back to the classroom and talk a bit about how you found your style in teaching students? Did it come naturally or was it just like, you just loved it, and that's why I also became great at it. Uh, I think it's a combination of uh, uh, skill. And in other words, uh, the idea was to uh, uh, explain things. 
because you're teaching. It's not about uh, just um, giving a lecture, say, at a professional society meeting where you're sitting with a group of people who are all knowledgeable about the, the subject matter. They're there voluntarily. That's why they came to hear you speak. Um, in this case, you have to have that skill. You have to know the subject matter. But um, I, I was always looking for uh, the place where I would have the greatest impact. And so I was drawn to the, not the small classes. Most of my colleagues at MIT uh, want to guard their time so they've got uh, the opportunity to, to do their research. Um, and uh, I was, uh, I really enjoyed teaching, very much so. And so I, I had the good fortune of being uh, uh, given an assignment to be taking uh, small sections of a, of a large, um, first year chemistry class, which was taught by uh, one of the people in our department. And uh, I watched this man teach and I said, I like that, I like that. And uh, uh, so by, by observing how he taught and uh, there were other people in my life that I watched them, how they lectured and so on. And uh, what I noticed about the, the, the really good speakers is that they were uh, they, they, they took risks and they, they really put themselves out there and, uh, but, but not to, not to showboat, but in order to, um, to make their points. And, uh, and when I first started, I was very concerned about being perceived as competent and so on. So I was very prim and proper, but over time, I, I started to let more of my, uh, inner personality come forward. Uh, in a way that would uh, hold the attention because I ultimately became uh, the lecturer in charge of this large class. And at, at its height, it had uh, typically over 500 students. There were two years where it had 630 students, which was larger than any auditorium at MIT. We had an overflow room and we were simulcasting into another uh, room. Um, and, and so now I've got, uh, and this was a required class. So now I have, uh, let's say, 518-year-olds, uh, many of whom have no interest in, in chemistry because they didn't choose their major until their second year. So all first years had to take math, physics, chemistry, biology. And some of them chose my variation of chemistry. And I knew that the number one goal for me was to uh, uh, catalyze their interest. Because if they're not interested, they're just going to uh, do the minimum possible and they're going to learn the bare minimum to pass the class. And so uh, I, I made that my challenge is to, to make this engaging. And uh, the other thing was that um, early in the, when, when I was still substituting for, for my predecessor, he went on sabbatical around 93 or something like that. And I took the, the class for him while he was on sabbatical. And after the first time I substituted, somebody came to me with a video cassette. And I said, what's this? And at the back of this large auditorium, evidently there was a video camera and they were uh, filming. It wasn't professional, it was just a camera on a tripod. And the guy would just, you know, from a distance he would catch me and the, the boards and so on. Anyways, uh, so my predecessor would record the lecture and then if student missed it, they could borrow it and then return it. So I took this thing home and I watched it and I was horrified. 
I could see myself doing all sorts of things, making certain gestures, you know, and then making certain, uh, you know, you know, and uh, and all of this stuff. And I was horrified. So I, I looked at those lectures critically. And the second thing I did is I, I, I sat in front of a, a TV and um, imagine that I'm 18 years old and I'm a first time learner. And I would look at the TV and watch myself roll out the subject matter. And every so often I would say, that's wrong. You can't go, you, you missed a step. They can't, they can't go from that point to the next point. You have to give them the intermediate or what you just said is, is, is pointless. It's, it's useless. It's, it's confusing because if you read a chemistry textbook, they're horrible. They're horrible. They're not written to teach. They're written from the perspective of the person already knows it, can go back and look at it. It's all a retrospective. Just the way we learn language, you know? We look at the language book, you know, these are the nouns, these are the verbs, these are the cases, this is future tense, this is past tense, and so on. So how do we learn language? You're a baby lying in a crib and you just hear this ordered sound stream and eventually you learn these sequences of sounds. And eventually the brain figures out how to, if I want to get something to eat, I make this noise. And if I want to uh, go to the toilet, I make this noise. And eventually I figure out that there's a structure to the language, but we don't stay, get in front of a child and say, okay, today we're gonna to do regular verbs. No, that's not how we learn. And so I, I, I basically taught myself what the uh, subtext is of, of, of each lecture. And then of course, other things that I did was to, I, I believe in storytelling. And so I made sure that each lecture, it had some kind of a, it's a story. Why are we doing this? You know, where did this come from? It's, there was a lot of history in there. The, how, how modern chemistry came about starting in the 1800s and going up through the early 1900s, right up to uh, DNA and so on into the 1950s and so. And, and, and then, then giving real world examples at the end of each lecture. So it isn't like you, you spend a, an entire semester, you learn only theoretical things and you keep telling students, wait, when you become a fourth year, then you'll have a capstone project. But in the meantime, you, you don't learn anything useful. And so I made sure to, to integrate all of this stuff. And, and then the cultural pieces, I brought music at the beginning of each lecture and played it with a theme that was related to the content of the lecture. Occasionally there would be some film clips from, from cinema that had some relevance and uh, uh, sometimes uh, some writing. And, and basically I came to the conclusion one day uh, that it's not a chemistry class. It's a chemistry-centered class. And that means I can say anything I want in that room, as long as it's not vulgar, it has to be professional, but I can do anything I want, as long as it facilitates the learning. And, and then I became bolder and bolder and bolder and took greater and greater chances. I mean, I had one lecture where we were starting looking at phase diagrams, we brought in liquid nitrogen and I had, I had uh, 
roses and I would dunk them into the liquid nitrogen and then smash them because that talked about the glass transition temperature and, and dropped in carbon di dioxide and it generated big bubbles. And, and then I drank the, the, the vessel with the carbon dioxide bubbles and the liquid uh, nitrogen and, uh, you know, just, just crazy stuff that we were doing. And, um, uh, and of course, as I'm doing that, I'm playing a, a, a passage from Phantom of the Opera. And, you know, just to make it um, very, very engaging. That's super interesting. But I also think it's so, so relevant because obviously it's easier to remember a good story than to memorize the periodic table, right? So at least in my experience, sometimes it's so hard to learn these subjects because you're trying to memorize it all the time but you don't have a story to put the pieces together. So, I mean, how did you learn this? This is just, when you started reading about physics and chemistry, did it all make sense? Or did you have your own learning habits and how you really, you know, found it so easy now, at least to master it? So I, uh, at the University of Toronto, um, I, uh, I majored in uh, engineering science and uh, with uh, material science. And, um, the, there was no uh, general chemistry class uh, of this type. We, we immediately went to physical chemistry and thermodynamics. So when I came to MIT, I was thrown into this class. And quite frankly, I, I didn't know a lot of the material. And so because I was in this uh, uh, small section where there's probably about 15, 20 students, it was all Q&A because my, my predecessor did the major lectures three times a week. And twice a week, I would be answering questions. And it wasn't just um, how to do this, some of the homework problems, but also uh, uh, conceptual problems. So I had to basically teach myself all of this stuff. So I, I think that part of the reason that I was able to do this was that I myself was a first time learner in many ways. So I, I call myself an Aravist. I came to the field. I, I wasn't. I wasn't a, a, a career chemist going back to my uh, early undergraduate days, and um, and so as I as I had to teach myself this stuff, um, then that that helped me understand what the thought process is and, and what to uh, present to the students to get them to understand. Uh, this is what you pay attention to. Uh, it, it, I did not follow the textbook. Many people, they essentially take the text and they basically transfer it to the chalkboard and so on. What I did instead was I, I know this is where we begin. This is where we want to be at the end. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the, I'll take you by the hand, so to speak, and, uh, and lead you, lead you through the, the learning process. And then along the way, as, as part of the, uh, the storytelling, um, it's not this equation, then begat this equation, which begat this equation, and now we have another equation. No, this is story. You know, you start with, uh, you know, uh, go go back to wherever you want. Uh, Niels Bohr, Niels Bohr, he, 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 he takes, uh, he, uh, he go, goes to uh, Copenhagen, and, and then he goes on a sabbatical to, or postdoc. He gets a postdoc from the Carlsberg Brewery Foundation, and he goes to, to the UK, and he works with uh, uh, 
uh, Ernest Rutherford and he works with J.J. Thompson and there's controversy there and, and you know, how, how he evolved and he looked at the hydrogen lines, which, uh, you know, came from uh, Angstrom. Those were measured in the 1850s in, uh, in, uh, in Sweden. No one could make many, they, they, they couldn't figure out what the sequence was. And just integrating all of this stuff, the time, the place, the people, so it, it was it was my own discovery. I was learning this for the first time. And uh, I think that was that was instructive. You know, you it's almost counterintuitive. If, if, if you wanted someone to teach French, you would find a native speaker of French. But I could argue that, well, if you're a native speaker of French, there's so much that just comes naturally to you when you're trying to explain to a first time learner you don't realize what the obstacles are in, in the learning process. So maybe you should have someone who's a professor of French who is not a native speaker of French, who had to learn the language and then maybe can remember what the uh, impediments were along the way and can help the students uh, as their first time learners. I mean, it's crazy to say we don't, you know, in, in my research, I said I didn't hire the experts. I hired the anti-experts because the experts are already jaded. They know nothing can work. It's all been thought of. Your idea is crazy and so on. They brought out the, 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 the newcomer and newcomer is fearless. Newcomer doesn't realize what won't work. And we, we tried some outrageous things and, and we succeeded. But isn't that the perfect segue to talk a bit about your um, innovations? Because, I mean, there's so many stories in science where people are just trying and experimenting and suddenly they have a breakthrough. But like you said, if you talk to an expert, the expert will usually tell you all the reasons why something will not work, while a new person have no idea. So they just try to put stuff together, right? So, I mean, isn't that one of your big lessons building all this, you know, amazing projects that you basically, like you said, you trusted the anti-experts and just went on and tried it? Well, it's it's a blend. Uh, no question. Uh, the, the, the people that came to work with me on the liquid metal battery project, uh, by and large, had no background in uh, either electrochemistry or liquid metals, molten salts. Uh, uh, I, on the other hand, had some background in liquid metals and molten salts and conceived of this idea of a, of a liquid metal battery and then, uh, uh, then gave them my perspective on, on how to think about the problem and then, uh, and then turn them loose. So th there, it, it was a blend of, of not, a, not a team of experts, uh, but you know, at, least, at least somebody in the room had to know something otherwise. That would be, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they talk about if you have enough monkeys with enough typewriters and enough time, eventually comes a Shakespearean sonnet. Well, that's just the law of probability, but we don't have that much time. So we need to have um, uh, new people, anti-experts, but with a little bit of um, guidance and then, and, then, and then let them try things, let them propose their... their uh, their solutions. I, they, I have to give a clear statement of, of the problem. I've often said that the, uh, the, the key to success in, in research is uh, um, asking the right question. A brilliant answer to a poorly posed question is not a brilliant solution. 
people are finding answers to questions that nobody cares. So the next question is really about the grid, because in like it seems like the world we are approaching is going to be a renewable world, hopefully. And of course, we're going to rely on solar, wind, hydro, geothermal. I don't know what you think about nuclear. And of course, the big problem here is the grid. And I know that you have explained the problem with the grid so many times, but maybe you can just fill in the blanks for people who don't really understand why the grid has been so hard to solve, because that's the big piece you've tried to figure out, right? Yeah, so uh, the grid has been called uh, the most marvelous uh, engineering uh, construction of the 20th century. Um, the generation of electricity, uh, we all understand that. You, you've named some of the, the methods. There's uh, coal, various fossil fuels, which you burn, which heats the water, which then spins the spins the, the turbine and then uh, generates the electricity. Um, and we're looking to replace that with wind and, and solar. And uh, nuclear is carbon free and I, I'm not opposed to, to nuclear fission. And of course, if we had nuclear fusion, that would be uh, fantastic. And then there's geothermal, um, hydroelectric, it's water running downhill and spins a turbine and so on. Uh, but the, the thing about the grid that people don't appreciate is that uh, supply has to be in perfect balance with demand everywhere at all time. Because electricity is not like water where you, 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 if you have a bonus, there's a lot of rain. So then you can store that water and then you, you don't have to uh, de be depleted of, of precious water. But electricity, once it's generated at the, at the source, it goes into the, to the grid, in, into the wires, so to speak. And um, when you plug in your appliance at the home, um, you're expecting a certain voltage and a certain frequency. If the supply isn't in balance with demand, let's say the supply is uh, in deficit, you'll have what they call brownout conditions. The voltage sags. And so if the voltage sags and the appliance needs a certain amount of power, the current will go up and, and you can damage the device. And the same is also true in the other direction. If you have, uh, say, solar and you don't have the ability to, to get rid of the excess electricity and how do you get rid of it? You have, to, you have to consume it. You have to send it through some kind of a load. You call up factories and you say, turn on all of your equipment. We have to, we have to drain the current. Otherwise, the voltage will rise. I mean, there are days in Germany where the voltage, instead of being, I don't know, 220, 230, is up around 250. And at 250, you, you, your washing machine, your refrigerator will be destroyed. So uh, what do you do? And nuclear, by the way. Nuclear, people think, well, nuclear is great because it's there all the time. Yeah, it's there all the time. But the demand in the day is highest. In the middle of the night, it's lowest. But unlike a coal-fired plant, you can't cut back the generation of nuclear power. It, it, it operates over a narrow range. So you, you, you set it so at peak demand, the nuclear reactor can meet the peak demand. But when the, the low demand is in the middle of the night, the, the curtailment of nuclear reactor isn't enough. It's still producing too much. And at that point, you put it into storage. Storage is your 
um, is your ballast. It allows you to keep that balance between supply and demand. That's in a conventional grid. I haven't even said anything yet about solar. Now, if you tried to go to solar, everybody wants electricity uh, all the time. And especially if, if you think solar, well, obviously there's no sun shining after sunset. And after sunset, it's dark and you're in the home and you want to read by the light. You want to uh, run your uh, uh, devices. And so that means you have to be able to account for that intermittency between sunset and sunrise. And so the adoption of these uh, carbon-free renewables, both wind and solar, they're both intermittent, and that adoption can't proceed without the concomitant amount of storage. If we, if we install intermittent generation without the requisite amount of storage, this is going to make a mess of the grid because there are going to be times when we don't have enough electricity. And I don't think the, the ratepayers are going to be happy that, well, when we do have electricity, it's carbon free. But sorry, we don't have electricity for you after, after sunset. People are going to say that's, not, that's unacceptable. So uh, storage is, is absolutely critical for grid security, grid stability, and also for the... Uh, adoption of uh, renewable intermittent sources of electricity. And a very interesting part I've listened to many lectures or presentations you gave is the way you found the answer because you were creative. You started at the right place. You started with something cheap. You didn't start with like a high complex uh, solution and then try to make it cheap. So just introducing your battery solution, I mean, I don't want you... you uh, you don't have to take the full story, but you can say like how you managed to come up with the system because you basically went to uh, aluminium smelting place, right? And there were the, the perfect starting point, basically. Yeah, so it's exactly as you said. Uh, most people, when they think about grid storage, is massive. This is, this is not like a lithium-ion battery is fantastic. It's given us so much of what we treasure in today's world. The, the smartphone, the, the laptop computer, and now even going into uh, automotive applications. But it, it was never designed to go to grid. So when I was thinking grid, this is going to be unprecedented scale of, uh, of storage. Batteries that are like megawatt hours, gigawatt hours. If, if you told somebody in 1991 that the lithium ion battery would have to satisfy storage at the level of uh, 100 megawatt hours, they would just turn and walk away from you. So, um, so I, I decided that it's not about taking a lithium ion battery, which is a, you know, a tiny, tiny cell, a cylinder, um, and scaling it up to 100 megawatt hours. I looked at something that traffics in large amounts of electricity and um, that aluminum smelter. And uh, it, it runs at 24 seven without interruption. Um, and a typical smelter today might be 500,000 amperes at four volts, that's uh, two gigawatts. And yet we, we turn uh, uh, aluminum oxide into aluminum metal for less than $1 per kilogram. So I looked at that and I said, this is a modern miracle. Uh, this is, Fantastic, but if I could just teach this thing not to consume electricity, but to, uh, to store electricity and give it back on demand, I know at the end, I would have something that's big and cheap, as opposed to starting with something that is 
small and cheap and I got to figure out how to make it big and not have it catch fire and all of the other headaches associated with lithium ion technology. So it was, it was, it was the contrarian thinking that was sort of the, uh, the origin of the uh, liquid metal battery. Looking at it today, uh, I read a title that set uh, Ambry a battery that could change the world. What needs to happen in order to change the word could to will? Is it about politics? Is it about getting the right contract, scaling it up? But in your mind, how will this play out the next years? Are you ready to just scale it up or do you see big hurdles that need to be overtaken? Uh, no, it's it's simply mastering the um, the manufacturing at scale. I mean, I invented the, the technology at the university. I with my students and postdocs, um, and the, the electrochemistry has proven to be even better than we imagined. I mean, we've got data where we're running for years uh, with deep discharge, thousands of cycles, and retaining ninety nine plus percent of nameplate capacity. No capacity fade, as as you see in in lithium ion and so on. But that was in the laboratory at the university. Now to build these things, we had to invent the entire universe. It wasn't just the, the chemistry, but all right, how do you upscale it? What should be the cell size? And then we have to put an, an aggregation of cells together that will generate enough heat that they can continue to maintain the high temperature by themselves. And, and then the manufacturing uh, there involves uh, uh, liquid metals, molten salts, how do you handle those in a manufacturing environment? And the, the, the temperatures that we're running at are just, uh, let's just say around 500 degrees Celsius. And uh, at, at some point you have to have a, a feed through where you have one electrode, electrode of one polarity, uh, and you have to access that you have to go through the container to get access to that. And then the other electrode of opposite polarity, well, you can, you can let that electrode be in contact with the container. So that, that one electrode has to have a, a, a means to connect, and that's got to be a feed-through. And that feed-through has to have an insulating collar around it. And that insulating collar is not going to be metallic because it, it will conduct electricity. And so to come up with a, a, a dielectric ceramic seal that can uh, tolerate the, the, the thermal environment uh, and also has to be prepared for uh, disruption. What if, what, if the, what if the grid goes down and the batteries cool and then we have to reheat them and so on? The, the, that ceramic has to be resilient, and, uh, and, but it has to be cheap. I mean, I could build you the battery 10 years ago to a NASA price point, but to, to, to make these things at scale and, you know, not, it's not like graduate school where you, you make 10 cells and two or three of them work and you publish your paper and you're so proud. This means you make thousands of cells and all of them have to work. You know, it's six sigma quality control and so on. There's no room for error. And and then we have to demonstrate this at scale. And so it's a long journey. And that's why, you know, Ambry's probably got another year before we will re release the first product into uh, customer hands because it has to be uh, resilient. If we release the first product prematurely and it fails after a short period of time, 
then our reputation is destroyed. And there's no second chance to make a first impression. So you have to get it right. And, and then even, you know, you mentioned about uh, regulatory and policy and so on. I mean, if, if we want to put this on the grid, no, you, you cannot play with the grid. There is no sandbox for the grid. You have to demonstrate that this device is, is stable and will not, because if we put this device on the grid and then there's, there's a cascade of, of power loss, I mean, the, the, the grid operator, the generator, the distributor, they're all gonna be so angry. They'll, they'll, they'll say, this is crazy. We, we can't take these chances. So uh, the only way that we can demonstrate that is to find some sort of off-grid, uh, like microgrid place where we can sort of test drive it, so to speak. And, uh, and then people say, well, we want 20 years. 20 years of, of uh, operation uh, with no more than this amount of capacity fade. And let's say, uh, so, we, so we say, well, we've done the tests and we've, we've gone you know, five years, uh, 5,000 cycles, um, deep discharge, uh, less than 1% capacity fade. They say, no, no, you said you're going to go 20 years. Show us data for 20 years. I said, you want data for 20 years? He said, yeah, we want data for 20 years. So, you know, the bar is set really, really high. And uh, I, think, I think the way things will turn out is there, there will be some first adopters, uh, people who really want to go green, and they're, they're gonna pair our Ambry battery with uh, solar arrays so they can run their facility 100% uh, carbon free. And, um, when that first uh, customer is able to give independent testimony to say this thing really works, then the second customer. In, in this risk-averse uh, environment, nobody wants to be first. Everybody wants to be first to be second. Once they know somebody else has, has taken the risk and survived, then they'll say, okay, let's, let's, let's have a conversation with these people. It's super interesting. And I think when you mention, you know, nobody wants to do something wrong with the grid, it just shows you how difficult this is. Because if you're a tech guy from Silicon Valley making a small app, I mean, the consequences are zero if you miss. But this is a completely different ball game, And it also is a completely different ball game in terms of financing, right? I mean, it seems from the outside, you've been lucky to get great people on board. But I don't know how easy that is to get people like, you know, gates and total energy etc to join you but it's a long trajectory and you know it's high risk right but isn't it also very interesting to work with something which has the potential to be so important that even though the risk is high it feels like the right thing to try to achieve at least yeah uh there's no question that the, that the reason people want to work on this project is a uh, uh, higher sense of purpose i mean uh it sounds a little bit trite, but but it's true. I mean, the, the people in our workforce, they're doing this because they want to change the world. And they want to change the world for the better. And uh, there's some really uh, hard, uh, really time-consuming work that has to be done to, to, to change something like the grid. The grid is not, as you point out, it's not like writing code. This is, this is physical. We call it tough tech. 
I call it heavy industry. And um, uh, the barrier to entry is very high, but um, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's a problem worth solving. Definitely. Put another yeah. way, we can't afford not to solve it. <laughs> In other words, all the solar and all the wind are, they're useless. They're not help, they're useless. I mean, I just have to ask the question, given that this technology work, are we going to be like, is it going to be a competition towards Tesla or is it a supplement? Or obviously it's different sort of batteries and scaling, but it should also be synergies if you're going to scale to the same amount or is it more competition in terms of the technology between Tesla, power walls, et cetera? Or is it just like no synergies at all? No, I think that uh, it's a big market. Um, because we need uh, storage at massive scale for, uh, you know, say enterprises, uh, data farms, cloud computing. These people consume huge amounts of electricity. The, the power wall is, is, first of all, it's a lithium ion chemistry. So it has its limitations. The power wall is on the order of some, I don't know, four to seven kilowatt hours. And that's, that's probably a, as far as you can take it. Um, we know that, the, that there was this uh, construction of a big facility of 100 megawatt hours in South Australia. And, and these large facilities, they're, they're, they're constantly being monitored to maintain the temperature so they don't go into thermal runaway and so on. Um, so if you can give a, a chemistry that is more uh, robust and, and less less threatening from the standpoint of fire, I think people are gonna to gravitate towards it. And, and we've, we've looked at how, um, how small we can make liquid metal battery. And people have asked us, would this work in a single family home? Well, a single family home needs some 10 or so kilowatt hours per day. So you might wanna have several days. So maybe it's less than say 100 kilowatt hours. At 100 kilowatt hours, the liquid metal battery is too small to, to be self-sufficient. <coughs> Pardon me. So um, th there needs to be another battery chemistry to, to fill, fill that gap. So I, I don't see this turning into competition. I think the market is so big that uh, we need uh, as many uh, approaches as possible, as many solutions as possible. And some of the solutions may be regional. What works in one uh, geography may be unsuitable in another geography. So I say, I, people say, well, well, isn't, this, isn't this outfit a competitor? I said, no, they're allies. We're all, we're all trying to bring um, stability to intermittent renewables and anybody who can, can help move that forward uh, is welcome. So we don't, we don't look at others and say, well, uh, we have to disparage them. We never disparage. It's, it's not correct. I couldn't agree more. And like you said, I mean, the problem is so massive that, I mean, whoever can solve it, there's room, I guess, for making a great business. Just last theme I want to cover a bit about your life philosophy, because one point that I found interesting is that it seems like you have a bias towards betting on young people. I mean, one of the guys who is the co-founder and CTO in this battery production, he was fairly young when he started, right? So 
I mean, can you talk a bit about your experiences with, you know, letting young people thrive, basically? So if they have the passion, the IQ, there's a big upside in also getting them involved as soon as possible. Well, I think that's part of the um, part of my mission as an educator, that uh, when you do research at the university, you have two products of the research. You have the, the research results themselves, which may or may not turn into a new technology, which may or may not turn into a, a startup company and so on. And then you have the new, the new uh, the person. So I, I, I talk about in my TED talk, my last, my last words are uh, inventing inventors. And uh, so you take, you take the student or the raw material and um, you mentor the student and um, and at the end, you have you have another inventor, and uh, you know that w- when I travel, <clears throat> people ask me, um, "How do you teach creativity?" It's a very hard question. Um, I'm just I don't have a, a creativity class. It's uh, it's just it, it's it's the way we learn behavior. We don't sit people down and say, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, and so on. We conduct ourselves with integrity and, and hope that people follow that model. If the model good behavior. Um, and it's the same thing with uh, how, do you, how do you teach uh, creativity? You, you, you take people along the journey of, uh, of invention, and then they, they eventually figure out how to unlock their creativity. That's what I do. It's not the, the, the model of education. Uh, the student is an empty vessel and, and I have the water and I, I pour water into the vessel and fill it up. And then the student leaves with all this knowledge. No, I say, you know, the student has capabilities, but the student has to release those capabilities, grant himself or herself permission to, to, to think, to ask, ask the, uh, the audacious questions. You know, it is forbidden to forbid. You know, you, 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 uh, you know, they say it in Paris, you know, uh, uh, be realistic, ask for the impossible. And, uh, and sometimes with enough ingenuity, the impossible becomes the inevitable. But you have to be willing to stand back and, and watch them uh, struggle. And you know, sometimes they, they, they stumble and then, you know, you give them some more pointers and so on and eventually they become they become colleagues that's that's a great great answer when when you mentor people do they typically come with you with the same questions or is it every person is so different so it's just about you know guiding them and helping them you know find their way basically i think it's uh the the questions will be different because the project will be different i mean you know, everybody on the liquid metal battery. We had about uh, 20 people at uh, at the peak, um, and they were they they learned a lot from each other as well. Uh, and and then when we were working on the molten oxide electrolysis, that was a, a different uh, set of challenges. So different questions requiring different answers. Definitely. Well, I'm just going to wrap it up there, Donald. It was a pleasure having you on. And thank you so much for for taking the time. My pleasure. And uh, I hope that we'll have another conversation when we can talk about the 
the uh, worldwide distribution of liquid metal batteries, but uh, let's we need a little more time before that. If you like this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.